Well, this morning we're going to uh, give our thoughts to the incarnation of Emmanuel this morning. We'll be looking at a lot of different verses. We'll primarily be spending our time in the Gospels uh, this morning. There are four major chapters of Scripture that are devoted basically to the coming, the first coming of Emmanuel. So we'll be focusing on that uh, this morning. But I'd like to begin by just... uh, Reminding everyone that uh, the coming of Jesus Christ really is a theme of Scripture. Uh, In the Old Testament, He's predicted. In the Gospels, He is revealed. In the book of Acts, He's preached. In the epistles, He is explained. And then in the book of Revelation, as well as other places, He is expected as coming again. So what we're going to look at this morning is just kind of a brief uh, overview of some of the Scriptures dealing with the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, and specifically His birth. We can begin, of course, with Genesis 1.1. Why did God create the heavens and the earth? Well, of course, to display His glory, we see that in Psalm 19, but also to provide the earthly stage upon which the glory of redeeming grace would be played out. So He created the heavens and the earth so that on the earth man would be created, man would sin and come under the curse of God, and then God in His grace and mercy and love would bring about His eternal plan of redemption that would gradually unfold throughout the Old Testament and be consummated in the coming of Emmanuel. Of course, the very first passage we have that references specifically the coming of Emmanuel is Genesis 3.15, where again, God is speaking to the serpent and is cursing the serpent in the Garden of Eden and speaking of the seed of the woman. He says, He shall bruise you, Satan, on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. Obviously, there's a masculine pronoun. So the seed of the woman would be a boy. And obviously, he must be born at some point in time. And so we have the proto-evangelium, the first mention of the gospel of the coming of Jesus Christ. We also find, interestingly, in the Old Testament, a lot of miraculous supernatural births, which really kind of foreshadow the supernatural birth of Jesus Christ, of course, which is far greater than all the other preliminary ones. But think of the birth of Isaac, prophet Samuel, many others, that those those children, those boys, were given in response to prayer because... The uh, wife, the mother was barren. They were too old in age to have children. And all of these miraculous births found in the Old Testament, I think are foreshadowing and prefiguring the glory of the coming of the seed of the woman whose birth would be even far more miraculous than that. Of course, we know in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, We're told that wonderful prophecy that the Lord Himself will give you a sign. That behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son. And she will call His name Emmanuel. And that prophecy of the birth of Jesus Christ from a virgin's womb was given around 700 years before the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. And throughout the Old Testament Scriptures, there are over 400 prophecies and foreshadowings of the coming of Jesus Christ. Alfred Edersheim, one of the Old Testament scholars, said there are over 450 prophecies in the Old Testament that look forward and are fulfilled in Jesus Christ, either in His first or His second coming. So we have a lot of information in the Old Testament about the Lord Jesus. But then we have to wait centuries for His actual arrival. And so the Apostle Paul reminds us of this glorious time when he says that when the fullness of time came, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, 
that he might redeem those who were under the law, that he might receive, that we might receive the adoption as sons. So in the fullness of time, all of these Old Testament prophecies begin their fulfillment in the birth of Jesus Christ. As we now move into the New Testament, I'd like to really just kind of follow the historical development of these events as they relate to the birth of our Savior. So please turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 1. And we'll be dealing uh, with Luke chapter 1 and 2 and Matthew chapter 1 and 2. We'll try to do a brief cursory overview of the major events leading up to the coming, the incarnation of Emmanuel, God in human flesh. So the first thing we see in Luke chapter 1, of course, is that Gabriel, the angel, comes to Zacharias and informs him that he and Elizabeth, his wife, are going to have a child. Now they're old. They don't have any children. She's been barren. And so Zacharias has been called to Jerusalem to minister because he was a priest. So he's in the temple and on the right side of the altar of incense, Gabriel the angel appears. And he tells Zacharias that his wife Elizabeth is going to have a baby. Now what's so significant about John the Baptist, which she would give birth to, is that both Isaiah and Malachi prophesy of the coming of John the Baptist. And Luke, in his Gospel, especially ties the birth of our Lord with the birth of John the Baptist. John the Baptist would be the forerunner to the Messiah. John would be the Elijah to come prophesied by Malachi. And he would be the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord. And John the Baptist was highly esteemed by the Lord Jesus Himself as Jesus said that among those born of women there is no one greater than John. So such an important figure as John the Baptist who had introduced the King of the Jews, the Messiah to the world, it's appropriate that he should have a spectacular birth as well. Though nothing compared to the birth of Christ. So we read in verse 13 of Luke chapter 1, But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will give him the name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and he will drink no wine or liquor, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. Remember that. We'll come back to it. And he will turn the hearts, he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. It is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So here the angel says John fulfills Isaiah and Malachi in their prophecies of the coming Elijah. And John fulfilled that. Well, John wasn't quite sure he could believe what Gabriel told him. And so in verse 9, Gabriel responds to him. Verse 19, rather. The angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God. And I have been sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. Now imagine an angel appearing saying, I am am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God. And if that wouldn't give you goosebumps or make the hair stand on end or just jump off your head altogether, I don't know what. But here is an angel 
from the very presence of God coming to Zechariah saying, what I'm telling you is not something I've made up. This is not just my imagination. I am bringing a message from God Almighty. I stand in His presence and I am here to tell you of the birth of your son and you'll call him John and he will introduce the world to, to the world the Messiah who is to come. Powerful words. And this birth announcement, of course, became the talk of the town because Zacharias, because of his unbelief, was struck dumb, unable to speak until the birth of John. And when he came out, everyone was amazed. Well, now starting in verse 26 of Luke chapter 1, Gabriel, about six months later, Elizabeth is now six months pregnant. So now Gabriel comes to Mary and tells her what's about to happen to her. So we read, for example, in verse 26, now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. So now Gabriel comes to Mary and announces to her what's about to happen. We pick it up in verse 30. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. And he will be great. and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. And so here Gabriel basically brings the Word of God to Mary, quoting from Psalm 2 and 2 Samuel 7, that great covenant that God made with David, that she would have a baby boy. And notice how he's described in this passage. She's going to have a son. You will call his name Jesus, verse 31, which means Yahweh is salvation. So this little baby already is going to be Yahweh in the flesh who alone can save sinners. If you look at verse 32, He's the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give Him the throne of His father David, which occurred at His resurrection, according to Peter in Acts 2. Jesus is now on the throne of David. He's now ruling over the spiritual kingdom prophesied in the Old Testament. So now He is the King. He's he's the Son of the Most High God. He's sitting on the throne of David and He will reign over the house of Jacob, His new covenant Jacob, forever and His kingdom will have no end. So this is what Gabriel told Mary. Mary, in verse 34, said to Gabriel, how can this be since I'm a virgin? And then he explains it further in verse 35. The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. So now she is informed by Gabriel that she's going to give birth to the boy who will fulfill the Davidic covenant, who will be the Son of God, who will be the Savior of the world. So at this point, Mary now rises up and goes to see Elizabeth. And this is an interesting visit. I I would guess Mary probably told Joseph, maybe at this point, what she had been told by Gabriel. Don't know for sure. But she gets up to go to visit Elizabeth, her relative, who now she knows is also pregnant with the forerunner of the Messiah, baby John the Baptist. So she goes to visit Elizabeth. And we read several things. Look at verse 41. Still in Luke chapter 1, verse 41. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. 
So now Mary enters into the room. She's carrying baby Jesus. And baby John in the womb of Elizabeth just leaps within her, her womb. And then drop down to verse 44. Elizabeth is, just, is explaining to Mary what happened. She said, Behold, when the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby leaped in my womb for joy. So the Holy Spirit communicated to Elizabeth that little baby John the Baptist, now six months old, within the womb, leaps within her womb with joy. She, he leaps with joy. And then connect it back, you remember, to verse 15, where the angel said that he would be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. So here's the picture. Mary walks in. She has Jesus in her womb. John the Baptist in the womb of Elizabeth. In the very, in the very presence and nearness of his superior and ultimately of his Savior, Little baby John the Baptist is filled with the Holy Spirit and he leaps for joy in the very nearness of his Savior in the womb of Mary. This is really a phenomenal event. Very unique to say the least. But little baby John the Baptist who he would later say, I am not fit to untie the thong of his sandal. Yet when he, when baby Jesus entered into his presence, the nearness caused him to leap with joy. Does the nearness of Jesus fill your heart with joy? It should. That is the ministry of the Holy Spirit. That the closer we have fellowship with Jesus, there should be a joy in our Savior and our King. And little baby John the Baptist just couldn't help himself inside the womb. He just had to leap. I don't know how you do that inside of a womb. I think it's kind of tight surroundings in there. But he leaped with joy because of the presence of his Superior and his Savior. Quite an amazing thing. And then in Luke chapter 1, we find now the uh, Magnificat. And this is Mary. And notice what she says now in verse 46. And Mary said, My soul exalts the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. Because now Mary recognizes that her Savior is within her womb That Mary understands she is a sinner and she needs salvation. And so she is praising God, my Savior, because she knows that she herself also needs forgiveness of her sins. And so it's really quite an amazing uh, testimony to what uh, the Lord is going to accomplish. And then we read uh, that John the Baptist is born. And then we read that Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist, starting in verse 67 of Luke chapter 1, now makes a prophetic proclamation. Notice what he says. And what he's going to deal with is the coming of Jesus yet to be born. He's celebrating God's grace in the, in the birth of his son, John the Baptist, And then he ends up again with another tribute to the Lord Jesus. But look how he begins in verse 67. And the father Zacharias was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for He has visited us and accomplished redemption for His people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, His servant. So here, Zacharias is prophesying the ministry of baby Jesus. He's not talking about John the Baptist because John the Baptist was descended from Zacharias who's of the tribe of Levi who is a son of Aaron. So that's a different tribe. So he's talking about here the house of David. So it's a reference ultimately to Christ. So prophetically, the Spirit of God is giving him to rejoice 
in God accomplishing redemption for His people. And then he adds to that in verse 69, He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David His servant. Now granted, Jesus is still a little baby in the womb of Mary. But Zacharias has given the wisdom of the Spirit to prophesy of what he would accomplish. I like this verse 69 where basically the ministry of Jesus is described as a horn of salvation. A horn. In the Old Testament, that's tied to the horn of an ox and was used figuratively for power and strength. So the, so the horn of salvation is God accomplishing the power of our salvation. The power to accomplish redemption. The power of God to defeat our enemies, sin and Satan and death through Jesus' death on the cross. Power to protect us and to preserve us until we reach the glory of heaven with Christ. That's the power, that's the horn of salvation. That's God's power to accomplish it. A very powerful figure indeed. And then he drops down to verse 76. He praises God for the the birth of his son. He says, A new child will be called the prophet of the Most High. And you will go on before the Lord to prepare His ways to give to His people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins. And that's why John's ministry was to repent for the forgiveness of your sins. And then Zacharias returns back to a beautiful description of the ministry of the Lord Jesus in verse 78. Look at that. Because of the tender mercy of our God with which the sunrise from on high will visit us to shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death and to guide our feet into the way of peace. So he's referencing one of Isaiah's great prophecies of the coming of the Messiah who would be like the sunrise from on high to shine upon those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death. This is one of the great powerful images of the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the light shining in the darkness. And what's so beautiful about the quotation from Isaiah is that we by nature are in darkness. The world is a dark, dark, dark place. It's the darkness of sin. It's the darkness of death. It's the darkness of the curse that has fallen upon the world in which we live. The world is in darkness. And there is only one light. And that's the light of Jesus Christ who's described here as the sunrise from on high. That from the night of darkness emerges the light, the glory of this little Christ child that would grow up to be our Savior, our Redeemer. And this is an imagery that the Lord Jesus loves to use of Himself. You remember in John 8, verse 12, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. He who follows Me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. And you know, one of the exhortations from this is that uh, we need to walk in the light. We need to walk in the light of Jesus Christ every day. When we don't walk in the light, then we stumble in the darkness. And there's only one light, and that's the Lord Jesus. I recently had an experience that reminds me of the importance of walking in the light. And I I was uh, out at night not too long ago, uh, walking through a field, and I had a headlamp on. And that headlamp was illuminating the path in in front of me. And it shone on that rock that was in front of me, but my eyes were not where the light was shining. And so my eyes were off in the shadows and off in the darkness, and I didn't see the rock, and I tripped on the rock and fell on my face. Not very graceful. But oftentimes, you see, we have the light, 
but we don't keep our eyes on the light. And our light drifts off into the shadows of this world, the darkness of this world, and that's when spiritually we stumble and fall on our face. What Zacharias is proclaiming under the Spirit of God is that Jesus is the light that shines out of the darkness. We should be drawn to Him. We should worship Him. Glorify God for Him. And to walk and to follow Him because He's the light of the world. And when we follow the light, we'll walk in His blessings, we'll walk in His joy, we'll walk in His goodness. But when we take our eyes off the light and put it on the darkness, that's when we begin to stumble. He's the sunrise. He shines out of the darkness. He shines upon the nations and guides our feet into the way of peace. One of the great things we can also see that celebrates this great truth are the Christmas lights. If you're ever out driving around at night, you see those lights shining in the darkness. When you see that, think that's a symbol of Jesus Christ. That's what it's designed to be. The Christmas lights, the light shining in the darkness. And you can even attribute symbolism to the different colors of light. There may be red and green and blue and white and yellow. And just speaking of the of the fullness of the attributes of Christ, the blue lights that He came from heaven, the red is blood, the white He's sinless, the purple He's royalty, He's king, the gold He's God. And you can just you can see those Christmas lights and be be reminded that Jesus is the light that shines out of the darkness, and there's salvation only in Him. And you can worship Him even as you're watching those lights shining in the midst of the darkness. Well, from here we now uh, have to jump back to Matthew one real quick. So turn to Matthew chapter one. Because now the angel needs to inform Joseph of Mary's conception because he hasn't figured it out. He's very confused. And he probably thinks that maybe Mary has been unfaithful to him. But he's ready to divorce her because now she's with child and he knows that it's not from him. And so we read, for example... And this is, uh, as I'm getting there, uh, this what is uh, curious as to whether Mary actually told Joseph in advance what had actually happened to her and why she's pregnant. But if she told Joseph, which I can't believe she didn't, Joseph must not have believed her, must have thought she was lying because he was ready to put her away and divorce her. And so we read, for example, in verse 20 of Matthew chapter 1, But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins." And so again, now Joseph is told by an angel, we don't know if it's Gabriel or not, this angel is not actually named. I wouldn't be surprised if it was Gabriel. But now he tells Joseph that Mary's going to have a son, you'll give his name Jesus, same name he told Mary. And then he described his mission, that Jesus, which means Yahweh saves, he will do that. He will live up to His name. He will be His name. He will be God who saves His people from their sins. Quite an amazing mission for this little baby. And then in verse 23, verse 22, Gabriel, or the angel says, Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. And now he quotes from Isaiah 7.14, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son. They shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. 
And Joseph awoke from his sleep. So the angel said, Mary, you are fulfilling Isaiah's prophecy in Isaiah 7, verse 14. That virgin is you. That child is the Messiah. And you're going to have the privilege of bearing him. This name for Emmanuel is one of those incredible and important theological titles given to Jesus. He's Emmanuel, God with us. Because that's at the very heart of the redemptive promise given throughout the Old Testament. I will be with you. And what's so powerful about that is because what sin does is it separates us from God. Our sin has separated us. And so Adam and Eve were banished from the garden. They were separated because of the sin and the curse that fell upon them because of their disobedience. And from that point on, all mankind is now separated from God. They're not near to God. They're not close to God. They've been banished because of their sin. And the sinner now stands estranged from God, separated and lost, and that's There's no way he can remedy his own problem. There's no way he can get himself close to a holy God and have restored fellowship again. Because sin has put us far away from God. But God's grace through His Son, Jesus Christ, has brought us near to God again. We can know God. We can have fellowship with God through His Son, Jesus Christ. So that He is Emmanuel. He is God with us. And this beautiful restoration of fellowship with God was gradually, outwardly, symbolically portrayed in the Old Testament. It really kind of started with the tabernacle where God was now with His people. But still there were barriers between their fellowship. And then the tabernacle moved to a permanent location in Jerusalem, the temple. But there were still barriers. And then the Word of God tells us that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And now God takes on a human nature and literally is with us and dwells with us and saves us. And through His Spirit dwells within us. He's Emmanuel. He is God with us by the grace of God. I love the way Matthew Henry describes this. He says, by the light of nature, we see God as a God above us. By the light of the law, we see Him as a God against us. But by the light of the Gospel, we see Him as Emmanuel, God with us in our own nature, and a God who is for us. And that's the beauty of the Gospel of Christ. We'll now quickly jump back to Luke chapter 2. Quickly, quickly. So the next thing that happens, of course, is Jesus' birth in Bethlehem. We know the story. Joseph had to go to Bethlehem to fulfill the census ordained by the Roman government. And in verse 7, while he's there, Mary gives birth to their firstborn son. And then the amazing thing that happens, you know, of course, all this took place in Bethlehem, which means the house of bread. And that's really kind of providential also because Jesus, who would say, I am the bread of life, would be born in the city called the house of bread. So it's almost like Bethlehem itself is a picture of the ministry of Jesus. Jesus again said, I'm the the bread of life. Whoever eats of this bread shall live forever The physical bread from Bethlehem can only give you temporary health and life. I can give you eternal life. Because I'm the true bread that came down out of heaven. So Jesus is born in verse 7 and then in verse 8. Look at that. Now the angels appeared to the shepherds. In the same region there were many shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flocks by night. And an angel of the Lord, again we don't know who, Maybe it's Gabriel again. We don't know who. But an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were terribly frightened. I mean, just imagine it's dark. You might have some embers of a dying little wood fire over here on the side. We don't know. 
But suddenly the, the dark skies just lit up with the glory of these angels, this angel that has appeared to the shepherds. Verse 10, But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I give you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And the sign will be you'll find a baby wrapped in cloths lying in a manger. So they, the angel says, I bring you good news of great joy which will be for all the people. So the very first ones to see baby Jesus, to come and worship baby Jesus are these shepherds. Why, why did God choose shepherds? I mean, shepherds, it wasn't a, it's kind of a blue-collar job of sorts. Uh, it was kind of a humble profession, we might even say. But why did God choose shepherds to be the very first ones to come and see the newly born Jesus? Because they told this, this angel told the shepherds that today in the city of David, you'll find a Savior has been born. Today. So it's at the very day that Jesus was born. But why shepherds? Well, Micah, I'm sorry, Micah, chapter 5, verse 2, says, Out of Bethlehem will come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And so God appears to these shepherds to honor their profession Because this little baby would grow up to be the greatest shepherd of all. Matter of fact, Jesus in the New Testament is called the Good Shepherd, the Great Shepherd, and the Chief Shepherd. It's Jesus who will love His sheep. It's Jesus who will feed them and guide them and protect them and mend their wounds when they're hurting. And He'll even die for them as the Lamb of God who takes away their sins, that they might become His special chosen flock. He's the shepherd. And I think it's only fitting that in the providence of God, it was these earthly shepherds that were the first to come, to greet, to worship, to celebrate the birth of the heavenly shepherd. And so they gather and they worship And no doubt, reverberating in their minds is the words of the angels, I bring you good news of great joy. And then suddenly a whole sky lit up with more angels. There's a whole host of angels who began crying out, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among men with whom He is pleased. And then suddenly they vanished and it was dark again. And these shepherds went into Bethlehem and worshipped that baby because He would be the Savior. And He was basically the Gospel, the good news of great joy. How can we find that good news of great joy today in the darkness of the world in which we live? Well, I think that great joy is something that we can have when we understand three things. Number one, we are great sinners. Admit it, you are. We all are. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We have all sinned greatly. We may not see our sin as being great, but God does because we've sinned against a holy, infinite God. We're great sinners. Secondly, we deserve great punishment. We are criminals before a holy God. We deserve to be judged and punished. So we're great sinners. We deserve a great punishment. But God has provided a great Savior. That's the joy. That we can be forgiven. We can have the free gift of everlasting life through Jesus Christ. That's where the joy comes from. The joy of our salvation should overflow in our hearts. Well, From here now, we've got to rush back quickly all the way back to... Well, let's see. Before we we rush back to Matthew real quick, at the end of Luke, we have two godly saints that appear 
Simeon and Anna, when uh, about 33 days after the birth of Jesus, now Joseph and Mary bring him into the temple to complete the purification rites, the dedication rites, and they praise God. Simeon, I love Simeon. He says, For my eyes have seen your salvation, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. So Simeon saw that this coming Messiah would be the Messiah not only for believing Jews, but for believing Gentiles as well. And Anna celebrates and praises God to all who are looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. And now really the last passage I want us to look at is going back to Matthew 2. So turn there real quick. And this is probably maybe a year later. Don't know exactly how long, but they're no longer in a stable. They are now in a home. And we find this passage that we've already read this morning of the visit of the Magi. How many of them were there? Matthew 2, 1 through 12, again. Well, we don't know. There are three gifts. Many speculate that there are uh, three Magi. That's totally speculative could have been more Uh, they weren't kings like our christmas hymn says they were magi they were not kings they were really uh, persian or babylonian members of a priestly caste who mixed religion and a philosophy and astronomy they had a reputation for being wise because they interpreted special signs in the heavens they studied the stars So how did they know in Matthew chapter 2 that the birth of the king of the Jews had, had occurred? Well, probably a combination of special revelation and natural revelation. Special revelation probably came because they may very well have had access to the prophecy of Daniel, which basically timed generally when the Messiah would show up And maybe they had studied those passages and they knew a general time. So that would be the special revelation. That's a guess. And then the the natural revelation, the miraculous appearance of the star. So they see the star and then they head towards Jerusalem. Where would the king of the Jews be born? Well, they're thinking, of course, in the capital city in Jerusalem. So they pack their bags, they get their belongings, they get their camels all loaded up. And they're going to travel about a thousand miles. It would take a number of months probably for them to get there. A great expense, a great sacrifice of time, resources, and even of their treasures. But they're willing to do it to go worship the newborn king of the Jews. And so they make this incredible trip. And then we come to verse 9. And hearing that the king, they finally, when they get to Jerusalem, of course, they find out he's actually born in Bethlehem. So in verse 9, after hearing the king, they went their way, and the star which they had seen in the east went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. So that star, a miraculous light that led them to the very house where they were at. So it's not a star up in the heavens. They could never direct you actually to the home. But they go to the place. The star stood over the place where the child was. Verse 10. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother. They fell to the ground and worshipped him. And then opening their treasures, they presented him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. The law has been made about these gifts. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. If there's any significance or symbolism, possibly the gold could speak to royalty. Gold was certainly a gift for a king, right? Frankincense could maybe represent deity because frankincense was used in the incense of worshiping God in the Old Testament. Possibly there's a connection with His deity there. And myrrh, well, myrrh could be a symbol for His humanity. It was used in preparing the dead for burial. Myrrh was mixed with wine and offered to Jesus on the cross as an anesthetic. 
But from a very practical level, this was the money that would support this family as they had to flee to Egypt to escape King Herod. So the practical value was it provided all of their financial needs until they could come back into the land. But what's also important about these magi, they were Gentiles. They were Gentiles. And they're the first Gentiles to come and worship the Jewish Messiah. Because they understand that this little king, this baby, ultimately, and as the Scripture reveals, is not only for Jewish believers, but Gentiles will be grafted into the blessings of Israel. Romans 11. That Gentile believers would now be grafted in and share in the fulfillment of all the promises given to the nation of Israel. As God prophesied, Israel would be transformed into a spiritual people where now your physical descent is not what's important whether you've been born of, born of the flesh, but now it's have you been born of the Spirit because now you're a son of Abraham, an heir of all the blessings that were promised to ancient Israel through the covenants. And these first Gentiles were to come and to worship this Christ child. And they would literally later open the doors for a whole host of Gentiles flooding in to worship. You know, we get our tradition of giving gifts to some large extent from what the Magi did in bringing their gifts to worship the young child Jesus at that point. And why do we give gifts? Well, we give gifts because we have been given a gift. The greatest gift of all. The Lord Jesus Christ. And in the hustle and bustle of the holidays, I know oftentimes it's easy to forget that when we give to our loved ones or friends or whatever, it's because, Lord, You have given to us the greatest gift of all. The Lord Jesus. And so that's part of our, that many share as a tradition. But notice, who were the Magi giving their gifts to? They were giving their gifts to Jesus. To baby Jesus. So what gift should you and I give to Jesus today? To follow the spirit of the Magi is one thing we can give to Jesus by giving to others. But is it not also appropriate that we stand before Christ today and we need to give Him a gift? And what might that gift be? He needs nothing. But He desires the love, the service, the devotion of His people. The way Scriptures can lead us in Reflecting upon this gift can be found in Romans 12. By the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians 6 that we've been bought with a price. Therefore glorify God with our body. And again in 2 Corinthians, that Christ died for all that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for Him who died and rose again on their behalf. What gift will you give to Jesus this season? And let me suggest what we all, including me, need to think about. It's just coming before the King who is now on His throne in heaven and just giving Him Yourself. Give Him your heart, your soul, your body, your life, your ambitions, your dreams. Give Him yourself. To dedicate yourself to Him. That's a gift worthy to give to a king. That's a gift worthy of giving to our Savior. And may the Lord Jesus at this time, let us not forget the spirit and the heart of the Magi. Because they wanted to come and give a present to the child who's now a Savior 
sitting on his throne in heaven. And may God this season remind us that we've been given the greatest gift of all, the free gift of eternal life because this baby grew up to be a man who lived a sinless life, who died on the cross to save his people from their sins, who was bruised, who was torn, who was tortured, who was pierced, who was crushed as he bore the weight of our sins so that whoever turns from their sin and believes in him and him alone might receive the free gift of everlasting life. I hope you've done that in your heart and life, that you've placed your trust in Jesus Christ. And now that you've been given that gift, give, that, give your gift back to him. Give him your life. Renew your consecration to the Lord. Yeah, we're still sinners. We're still up and down. But renew your commitment to Jesus Christ because of the gift that He's given to you. Jesus said again, I am the light of the world. He who follows Me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Let's let's pray. Our Father God, we just pray that You would help us, Lord, in response to the glory of the incarnation of Emmanuel. That You would help us to follow the light of the world. Lord, oftentimes it's so easy for us to take our eyes off of Christ and to look upon the shadows and the darkness of the world. So Lord, forgive us. We are prone to wander. Prone to leave the God we love. And help us, Father. Renew our commitment. Renew our love and devotion and consecration to Christ. And just help us to follow the Lamb. Follow the light of the world. That we might be also, by His grace, the light of the world shining in the darkness around us. Use us, Father, for Your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.